Mother, a place where we unpack all things related to mothering. This is a community where we aim to create a comfortable space that allows for active discussion without judgment. Find us at thecuriousmother.com and follow us on social media. Our Instagram is at thecuriousmother. Hello and welcome to The Curious Mother. Um, I'm Kristen and with me is Melissa and uh, we're glad you joined us today. Melissa, what you been curious about? So I really want to talk about sleep. And um, if anyone listening out there does not know, sleep is actually uh, Kristen's specialty. Kristen is like the expert in all things sleep related. So we are all in for a treat. I'm going to put Kristen on the hot seat today to talk to her about sleep and being a mom. You cool with that? Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I just had my ego inflated. I spoke at a conference just last week and I was introduced as one of the leading experts in behavioral sleep in the in the country, <laughs> which was pretty cool. That's awesome. Like, and it's true. Wow. <laughs> it's true. So we are going to um, get any little tidbits of information we can off of you today because it's hard being a mom and sleeping. And I don't I don't know if anybody else out there feels like this, but I feel like since I became a mom, sleep is different, not as good, and I just don't feel my brain just never feels quite as rested. So I want to talk about why that is and then um, figure out what we can do about that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with what why does sleep change so much once we become moms? Well, there are a couple of really important changes that happen in our bodies, obviously, when we become mothers. So if we're talking, you know, the first thing that we need to do is look at uh, when women give birth. You know, so when we give birth, one of the things that happens is we actually have a surge in cortisol, um, which is our stress hormone. And it really, the cortisol, global cortisol levels start to go up in the last month of pregnancy, which is why for a lot of women, sleep really falls apart in that last month. I can remember being really pregnant and really miserable because I think um, they had made me stop working two weeks before my due date. And um, so I had nothing to do and I I was not resting. I was just gigantic. I wanted to be put out of my misery. And the thing is, is that those cortisol levels start to go up because we are going to need to be very responsive to baby. It is really bad for baby survival if we can sleep through baby crying. So what the brain does is it creates this priming. It sets us up for being able to have sleep easily disrupted so that no matter what baby needs any time of the day, we're going to be intensely responsive to it. You know That makes total sense. So from a biological pers- perspective, we need this. But it's it's horrible. Yes. I know. You know, and it's funny because I often will explain to new parents, you know, the challenge is, is that mom's physiology reacts intensely when your baby cries. Like, I don't know if you remember this, Melissa, oh but my gosh. like, it was, you knew it, right? You uh, knew your baby's cry. And I would tell you, when I would hear it, it would feel like lightning was surging through my veins. And I would look at my husband and think like, why are you not upset about this? I know. And, it, and you know, it's it's so neat because like even in the hospital after you give birth, you know your babies cry. Like, you know, you're yes. in the maternity ward and there are all these crying babies around, but you always know when they're bringing yours to you. And that is because our physiology is reactive to our own baby's cry. It's funny. It's not reactive to other babies. So we can tolerate somebody else's baby crying. But we feel physically bad if our baby is crying. That is amazing. 
it's really incredible to see how our bodies truly work. Yeah, and it's and you know the hard part is is men don't get it, right? <laughs> because, <laughs> because they have not gone through any of these changes, and so sometimes when I have um, families I'm working with who are struggling with baby sleep, I really will want dad to be a little bit more present because of the fact that his physiology is not firing off to the same degree that mom's is. Yeah. So let's let's start with for new moms. Mm-hmm. Um, that sleep is uh, is not easy to come by. It's yes. hard to fall asleep. I remember being very worried about everything, and so that stress wouldn't let my brain calm down yes. very much. Right. So, what would you say to new moms who are scared to sleep, who aren't, or who are sleeping lightly? Yes. Well, one of the things is you're often uh, moms are often told sleep when the baby sleeps. You know, try to get rest when the baby gets rest. And I do agree with that recommendation because you're exhausted. And what sometimes new moms will do is they will try to be productive throughout the day, right. even though they're really moving through a day with a significant reduction in sleep. So, I believe in them resting when baby rests. Um, however, I, I don't think that they should expect that their brain is going to turn off and let them go to sleep. You know, yeah. some some people are built with this capacity where if they have the opportunity to rest and they are deprived, they will be able to turn off and go to sleep and they're going to get a little bit caught up. Some people are not wired with that capacity. And so going back to that that cortisol amplifying, the hard part is, is that if you are a person whose sleep is a little bit more delicate mm-hmm. and then your cortisol levels go up, you very well may not be able to nap during the day. And so that that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or you're not following the instructions, um, but it just means that your brain is not wired with that capacity. So you want to rest physically, but your brain may not turn off. And then what's critical at night is recognizing that you want to try to make sure that your sleep environment is a really soothing place for you to be. Like you want to feel that you've moved into the room, you're in your bed, and your bed is a delightful place to be. And that can be really hard, um, you know, especially um, if you have baby somewhere in your space, which the American Academy of Pediatrics now recommends baby sleep in your room for the first year of life, which we can... (laughs) That's a whole Uh, other podcast. Um, (laughs) But the thing is, is that, you know, I can, with my third child, I had a C-section and I was not allowed to go upstairs for, I can't remember how long. And so our bedroom was upstairs and that meant that I had to sleep in the guest bedroom downstairs. And so not only did I have to deal with the discomfort from a C-section, a new baby, but I was sleeping in a strange room. And, And that was, you know, that just amplified all of the struggles. So anything we can do to try to create the idea that our bed is a really wonderful place to be, that's going to help us out. And then here's where it gets a little tricky, all right? Because we also have all these really awesome baby monitors now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, you know, in particular, the video monitors, which – so when you think about a good context for sleep, I, I want people to be sleeping in environments that are really nice and dark and nice and cool and either quiet or consistent sound. Yeah. And so the, the challenge with baby monitors that are video is they are lit up. Yep. And so now we have a lit device – usually on our nightstand, that is also making intermittent sounds, you know. And um, I often will encourage parents, like, 
don't get too hung up on the baby monitor if you don't have to, you know. I mean, our first house was only 1,100 square feet. There was no way I was going to sleep through baby crying in the other room because if he needed me, trust me, I could hear it through one wall. Right. Um, and I think that sometimes we, we have to be able to give ourselves permission to not be on super high alert because our brains don't benefit from it. You know, so baby will coo and moan and grimace and, you know, make lots of fun, different noises throughout the night. We don't need all of them amplified right by our head. <laughs> I'm so glad you're saying this because I would have loved to have had that permission, but I was one of those moms, super anxious, and yeah. I basically slept with the baby monitor in my ear. Like yeah. if it was, it was an inch away from me <laughs> because I was so scared that something might happen and I wouldn't hear it. Yeah. But truth is, I could hear like every breath. Oh yeah, you've got spidey senses, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's that goes back to cortisol. I mean, cortisol is priming your brain to be able to have you be responsible. So you do not need a device amplifying the sounds baby makes because cortisol is doing that for you, right. you know. And so unless you have a situation where your um, house is so large that baby is nowhere near you, you know, um, it, to me it doesn't usually make sense. And I'm always surprised. I will come across families where baby is now like four or five years old and they're still using the video monitor because they, it's just gotten to this – it becomes their parent's crutch. Like right. I even had one family where they felt it was the child child's crutch like the child would see the light from the video camera and know that that meant that mom and dad were watching them and that was how the child was soothed and so I actually said to them I was like well if it's about your child having the light the monitor doesn't have to be next to you (laughs) like go put the monitor in the kitchen and let the child have that soothing without you having sleep your sleep being disturbed right you know and it's it's true that we we need permission to understand to let go of our fears that something awful is going to happen yes. and we won't know about it. But yeah. I feel like with that extra cortisol, we're we're tense. We are yeah. on edge and we make believe horrible scenarios. Yes. Oh, yeah. Your brain is going to keep you in this really agitated state. You know, I can remember the first time my first baby slept through the night, I woke up and I thought for sure he was dead. Yes. And I ran you know, to his crib because I just felt for sure something awful had happened. And, um, and no, he had just slept, you know, but I think the thing is, is that we are so on edge, um, that, that we then will really be reactive. And the hard part is, is things like SIDS aren't, aren't really going to be, we're not going to be made safe by devices like that. You know, I mean, there are um, baby monitors that are meant to help with SIDS. Um, The evidence doesn't quite totally support them there. I think the studies on them are still relatively mixed, Um, but your baby monitor is not going to do it, you know, and instead what it may do is it may make you awake and reactive to just mild sleep transitions. Like babies tend to cry out intermittently during the night. It's a normal part of their sleep. And yet if you're hanging by the sound coming from your monitor, that's going to – it's going to keep you in a really anxious place. Yeah. And it's really good, I think, everybody to hear that you need to separate your brain being reactive does not mean that there's – necessarily anything to react to. And so to separate just because I fear it doesn't make it true. Yes. Yeah. That's hard. Believe it or not, we never had a baby monitor because even as we moved to bigger houses, simply because I, you know, and I think it comes from me having worked in infant sleep and and adult sleep for so long, I knew my brain had that wiring. Like I knew I was not going to be able to sleep through anything that baby, if baby really needed me, you know? And the thing is, is that I'm not normally the lightest sleeper, but 
I know exactly how my brain responds to to the fact that I need to be aware for baby. It's also really cool to hear that somebody who really knows sleep is really willing to um, let there be some space and not yeah. rely on baby monitors. So, okay. So here's the, the second problem then. So here we've got these babies and they start sleeping. We're still on edge. We're <laughs> yes. not sleeping great. And yes. then we're junk the next day. Yes. So let's talk about what is the right amount of sleep for moms to be getting once yeah. Yeah. So everybody has a metabolism for sleep, just like we all have a unique metabolism for calories, you know. And the the way I explain this to my clients is I will say, you know, you can't eat the same as your husband and you guys aren't going to sleep the same either, you know. I wish I could eat like I did when I was 16. I can't. <laughs> and so the thing is, is that what matters is knowing what your metabolism is, not really looking at big norms. You know, so the a normal amount of sleep needed by adults is really around seven hours. Some, um, some sources say more like seven to eight hours. That is still a number that is pretty hotly debated. Um, but it, you know, if you're aiming for seven to eight hours, you're, you're going to be hitting it on the spot. But some people are only five or six hour sleepers. And so you want to look at what your sleep looks like well before pregnancy to get an idea of what your metabolism would be. Um, first trimester of pregnancy always amplifies sleep. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, I've been able to tell when my girlfriends are pregnant because <laughs> there is this thing called your no sleep zone, which is three hours before your normal bedtime. Um, your brain, it's, it's physiologically impossible for you to fall asleep three hours before your normal bedtime. So if your normal bedtime is, is 11 p.m., 8 p.m. is your no sleep zone. You cannot make yourself go to sleep at 8. But a pregnant lady will have that over overridden. So I've had a couple of friends who said, oh, my gosh, I went to bed at 8. You know, and I'm like, oh, you must be expecting <laughs> because either you're really sick or you're, you're right. pregnant. That is fascinating <laughs> yes. that you that you can't sleep three hours before. Yeah. So and then what happens is three hours before your natural wake time is your no wake zone. So if you normally get up at, say, 7 a.m., 4 a.m. would be your no wake zone. It would, be, it would actually be really dangerous for you to be, like, driving a car at 4 a.m. because really? your brain is just not able to be fully awake, you know? Wow. So all those early flights when we rush yeah. to the airport, they're, they're setting us up for hardship. And oh my so, gosh. so you want to think, okay, what is my natural metabolism? And then you want to understand that that metabolism is a, across a 24-hour period of time. So if you, say, have a baby who's waking you up every three hours, it is, you know, and you're, you have a seven-hour metabolism, so usually you sleep 11 to 6 you are not going to get all seven of those hours, 11 to six. So what you want to do is you want to make sure your schedule is going to accommodate it, but not over accommodate it. So, you know, um, I don't know how yours did with nursing, but mine often required me to nurse them for like 20 to 30 minutes yep. at night. I yep. always felt, you know, <laughs> felt chained to the, uh, the um, rocking chair. And so what you would want to do is you would want to say, okay, I'm getting up for maybe 40 minutes, you know, each time, twice a night I'm getting up. So that's an hour and a half I'm lacking. So then what you want to do is you want to add that to your total sleep time in some way. It's really hard for us to go to bed early, yep. um, going back to that no sleep zone. Um, but sometimes we can usually be able to sleep in a little bit. So that might be one way we do it. Is we might say, okay, I'm going to move my bedtime instead of 11 to 6. Um, you know, if I'm going to add back that 90 minutes, I'm looking at 11 to 730. And you want to try to modify that. 
sometimes we have older kids and we can't sleep in, you know, and so then that is where it could be possible to recoup some of that if you are a person who is capable of napping. Um, But what gets tricky is if you sleep, say, two hours during the day and you have a seven-hour metabolism, well, now you only have five hours of sleep you can perform that upcoming night. And so that's where we can be set up for some struggles, you know, if we don't recognize that um, that we need to be able to also accommodate the the napping time during the day, then we might end up having longer wake periods at night. Okay, yeah, that's that's always um, it's tricky because naps seem so tempting, but you never know if they're a really good idea or not. Yeah, and everybody's a little different. So mm-hmm. it's funny because um, I was talking about this with a group of sleep docs uh, at this meeting last Friday. You know, because some people like our normal recommendation is a twenty to thirty minute nap is really great for uh, you know regaining some mental focus and feeling re-energized and and removing some of that drive for feeling sleepy. And so normally th- thirty minutes is just a really great. Pace for a nap. Mm -hmm. But for some folks, 30 minutes may be too long because they go into too deep of a sleep too quickly. And so they might need to stick to 20 minutes or 15 minutes. And for other folks, 30 minutes may not be long enough to really take away some of their sense of sleepiness. So maybe it needs to be 45 minutes, you know. And so it really is a end of one experiment. Like you have to experiment on yourself to know what you can do. You know, I can't physically nap. Like I am, I am not a napper. Not a napper. I'm so jealous of people who can. <laughs> well, it's funny because I'm like I'm I'm kind of the opposite. I'm judgmental of people who nap. <laughs> That's how I deal with that. <laughs> But my husband is a napper, and he works from home, and the truth is his work-from-home schedule means that he can take a cat nap every day. He swears to me that it's only 15 to 20 minutes, um, you know, and but for him, that takes all the edge off of feeling, um, feeling tired or feeling unfocused, and he loves it, you know. There is this thing that was developed a few years ago called the caffeine nap, which is where you drink a cup of coffee and then you take a cat nap. So, what? like, basically you're giving time for the caffeine to take effect while wow. you And uh, for um, folks who are like pulling all-nighters to study for exams, even though we don't recommend that for exam performance, um, it actually allowed them to regain some focus. And so so that can be a fun little tool. But the hard part is, is that um, caffeine can also energize baby if you're nursing. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, not really what I would recommend doing. Right. Okay. So say you've had a horrible night of sleep. And naps are not an option. Mm -hmm. What would you suggest to somebody struggling to make it through the day? Yeah, well, you know, um, many, many years ago, I had a workout trainer who used to say to me, energy begets energy, you know, and that was her way of encouraging me that I have to work out every day, even if I feel tired and fatigued. And so the truth is, um, moving your body actually does energize your body. We and we have um, our clock system has a lot of different um, cues to it that will tell our brain we're supposed to be awake. primary cues for wakefulness are exposure to bright light, um, activity within our muscles, and then also warmth and food. You know, so those are all the the different things that tell our brain we're supposed to be awake. So what I always recommend is it's really pretty important for us to make sure we're getting full spectrum sunlight. And sometimes when we're in with new baby, we're so wrapped up in taking care of baby that we don't even think about stepping outside. But it really is a good idea to go for a walk outside. And then the added benefit of going for the walk is we're 
also moving our muscles. Now, if we're not dealing with baby, let's say it's older children, and maybe we have our own, other reasons for disrupted sleep, then I want you to do a real workout. Like if you don't have to, if you're not, um, you know, caring primarily for baby, I want you to get your heart rate up. And um, that is going to really help energize you and put you in a position of being able to focus and feel actually relieved. You know, it'll help reduce fatigue. Um, another thing is paying attention to hydration. You know, when we are really tired, what do we often do? We turn to caffeine. And the problem is, is that drinking coffee or sodas that are caffeinated don't actually hydrate our bodies all that well. And dehydration is also going to lead us to feeling pretty fatigued. Lastly, you want to think about the foods that you're eating, you know. So when we are sleep deprived, our body has this funny tendency where it increases our desire to um, consume carbohydrates, especially highly refined carbohydrates. So our brain says, you know, please feed me a Danish. (laughs) And the thing is, is that we all know if we eat a really sugary snack, we might have a spike in energy and then we get to have the fun sugar crash, you know. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is we're going to have to maybe not listen to our brain totally and feed it the Danish, but make sure we're getting in some really good protein and fat in addition to some really healthy carbohydrate. Um, That's going to help brain be focused and it's going to help us to avoid that sense of really being exhausted. So can I ask about um, nutrition and hydration on the, at the end of a night? Because yeah. um, there's been a lot of nights when I'm exhausted, I've had a hard day, and I'm a little worried about sleeping well. And yeah. so I'll drink a glass of wine just because I feel like it'll take the edge off my stress. Is that yes. a good or bad thing? Um, not, not necessarily the great thing. Okay. You know, um, so the way that it works is um, when we consume carbohydrates, our body releases insulin to help us process those carbohydrates. And insulin is actually a key trigger to wakefulness in the brain. So breakfast is wonderful because, especially if it has carbohydrate, because that's going to get our brain up and moving. It's going to let us know we're supposed to be active. But then what happens is in the evening, we need to switch to sleep promoting um, activities. And one of the things that matters a lot is that we start to not have insulin activity within the last two hours before bedtime. And so what that looks like is most wine has a pretty fair bit of carbohydrate in it. I usually tell my clients to try to stay below five grams of carbohydrate in the two hours before bedtime. And that is usually like one glass of wine, maybe. Most of them tend to run a little bit higher than that. So the tricky part is, is that even though the alcohol will make you feel relaxed, it'll help to um, lessen some of your smooth muscle, or your your muscle tone, not smooth muscle tone. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That would not be good. (laughs) But, you know, it lowers some muscle tone. The hard part is, is it actually stimulates your brain. So what we see is um, alcohol-induced sleep is actually a very shallow sleep with lots of interruptions. Ah. So, yeah, we may feel rested, but it looks terrible on on EEG (laughs) at least. So, you know, what I usually do recommend is it can be nice to have a wind-down routine. Um, You know, obviously decaffeinated teas um, can be nice. Um, But it's really just about knowing that you're disconnecting yourself a little bit. If you're hungry, it doesn't work to go to bed hungry, obviously. Um, But you want to stick to something that's low carbohydrate, you know, high fat, high protein. So I always say, like, you know, cheese. My husband's favorite bedtime snack is a plate of cheese and salami that he slices up um, with no crackers, you know, so that it's just all fat and protein. Um, My favorite bedtime snack is just a tablespoon of peanut butter eaten off of the spoon. (laughs) But that helps to satisfy that. So, yeah, you can have the wine three hours before bed. (laughs) Just cut it (laughs) off at two. (laughs) Good to know. Good to know. Okay. So, all right. I'm going to be totally honest that after years of uh, not the greatest sleep, um, I just feel like my brain is not what it used to be. My memory is not up to par. 
Um, and I know that there's some reason for this. So can you yes. describe what's happening? Yeah. So um, one of the things that happens is sleep. We have really two key um, stages or, or types of sleep. We have rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. And then we have, and creatively enough, non-rapid eye movement sleep. <laughs> um, so when we think of deep sleep, we're actually talking about non-rapid eye movement sleep. Um, or the deepest stage of sleep is something called slow wave sleep. And what's funny about slow wave sleep is it's a time of very little electrical activity in the brain. So we always assumed that slow wave sleep meant that the brain was very turned off and resting, but it didn't really have much of a function to it. And what we've actually found in the last 10 years or so is what happens during slow wave sleep is the brain gets flooded with cerebrospinal fluid. And this is a really important time for the brain's um, health and metabolism. So this is um, slow wave sleep is actually the thing that protects us from dementia. And it protects us from dementia because it secures brain health. Oh, my gosh. This is fascinating. <laughs> and so the first third of the night is deep slow wave sleep. And so this is where having a pretty consistent bedtime can really benefit us. Because if you usually go to bed at 11, and let's say you stay up until 2 a.m. because you got sucked in by some show on Netflix. What will happen is you actually are going to miss a lot of your brain's opportunity for slow wave sleep because you've pushed back your bedtime too much. Um, and then as the night progresses, we see more and more rapid eye movement sleep. And what is really cool about REM sleep is REM sleep, if you look at the brain waves, they look identical to when you're awake with your eyes open. So your brain is intensely active during REM. Obviously, this is when we do our dreaming. And one of the things that our brain does to make it safe for us to dream is it turns off our ability to move our muscles mm -hmm. so we can lay perfectly still and experience all these very vivid dreams and we understand that REM is critical for a couple of brain functions the biggest being memory so REM is a time when the brain consolidates memories so it makes it easier for us to retrieve information so what we see is if we give somebody the opportunity to go through REM sleep um, after they've learned something new they'll actually be able to perform that better another fun thing about REM is it's the brain's way of expunging information it doesn't need anymore so this is why you can have a dream of a song you liked when you were a kid and wonder why that thing showed up. It showed up because your brain was trying to decide if you needed it, you know. Wow. <laughs> so so the, the, the challenge is, is that when the reason why lack of sleep affects our memory is kind of twofold. Our brain is not getting the health maintenance it needs to perform at its best, plus we're not getting REM to be able to have that, that um, consolidation of our memories. So that is where, obviously, you know, it matters a lot to have a really nice consistent schedule and make sure that you're giving your brain off the right cues for sleep. You know, so going back to like also – and then when we become moms, we have this other really fun thing, which is baby brain, right? Yeah. <laughs> Did yep. you go through that at all, Melissa? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I can remember opening up my washer and finding the remote control in it. <laughs> I mean, and I just – it's amazing how you can feel – so capable and suddenly so incapable after yes. having a baby. Could remember nothing. Calling yeah. everybody by the wrong name. Yeah. It was awful. I, know. I remember one time I was sterilizing nipples on my stove and then decided to run an errand. And like, <laughs> I came home and there was, you know, all of the water had boiled away. And luckily, like, the I don't know if, rub if that rubber could have caught fire, but I was like, I could not believe I had done that. <laughs> And oh. so, um, you know, so obviously the, the challenge with baby brain is the fact that, believe it or not, like when we give birth, and this was um, backed up by a nature neuroscience study that was published in 2016. So when we give birth, um, 
we lose IQ points. And um, that is so sad. <laughs> it's so sad. And uh, they, what, from what they understand, we lose IQ points um, for a couple of reasons. For one, it's really important that we forget how bad birth is. <laughs> I totally get that, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, what, what always will crack me up is um, my husband will often describe, I had one baby naturally without drugs and the other's not and um, he's all, he will always tell anyone who will listen that the natural childbirth was our best birth. <laughs> and, and it always cracks me up because I'm like, oh, it was, it was the best one for you. That was the one you liked the best. <laughs> but um, so it's important for us to be able to have definitely some fuzzy memories because um, not people who vi- not many people who vividly remember birth are going to feel all that great about going back into it. Right. Right. Another thing that they see is that that IQ drop is also meant to help increase our maternal bond. And so if you think about it, um, we need to be mesmerized by our babies. And our babies are not the most exciting creatures in the world. Not always. (laughs) (laughs) They are not great conversationalists right from the beginning. Um, I can remember just looking at my son and and being able to just sit there and stare at him. Like, I don't even think I can look at a TV with the intensity that I would look at my kids with, right? Right. And, um, And apparently, we all need to have our intelligence dampened a little bit so we can just be mesmerized by that little being. And so they see a direct correlation between that the intensity of that IQ drop and the intensity of the maternal bond. Wow. So the, and then the really good news, so that's kind of the bad news, is that, yes, we are all actually really not very bright <laughs> right after we give birth. Um, but the neat thing is, is that six to 12 months later, we actually have a significant recovery in our intelligence. And the belief is, is that we are, not only do we recover, but we recover and then some, you know. And so what they see is there are increases in myelination. So myelin is this fatty tissue that insulins, insulates neurons and allows our neurons to communicate more quickly. And so they see increases in myelination in different regions in the brain after giving, after having a baby. And so, um, and what they actually see, too, is this is a progressive thing. So the more children you have, the more likely you are to have benefited from this effect. Wow. So, Melissa, this is why I'm definitely smarter than you. <laughs> I've had three gains. <laughs> to my mere two. What yes. have I done to my brain? I know. You, you, you know, everybody needs to have many, many, many. <laughs> but... Um, so that's kind of the fun thing is like, yes, we we go through these really these times where we're not very bright or connected um, to anything other than our sweet little baby. Right. And that's so critical. And then the great thing is, is that we don't stay that way forever. Thank, Thank God. goodness. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is it's fascinating to know how much we are starting to understand about sleep and it, how crucial it is. But I think that's also kind of the daunting part is sleep is really, really important to us functioning well and yeah. being um, just being able to be content and and like ourselves. Yeah. And it's I think the hard part is, is that for people who sleep well, sleep is effortless. You yeah. know, you ask them why they sleep or how they sleep and they can't tell you anything about it. They just know they get into bed and their brain turns off and they go to sleep. Yeah. For people who struggle, sleep is 
unbelievably frustrating because it's supposed to be so natural and yet it is so hard to come by and often the more we fight for it the more we try to control it the more we pursue sleep the worse our sleep becomes right i often will compare it to infertility you know because anybody who's gone through um, infertility you know one of the challenges that they'll have is they'll be told don't stress about it the more you stress the less it the less fertile you're going to be your body has to know that you're relaxed and how do you not Stress right. about not being able right. to have a baby. Right. <laughs> I don't still, care about what you care the most I about. <laughs> I still would like to understand all of the voodoo that must happen. <laughs> that you know the games that people must play with themselves mentally yep. to try not to be stressed about that. And um, the, you know the same thing happens with sleep. And so often, folks I see who are struggling with sleep, they have these really exhausting rituals to try to bring sleep on. Yep. And then they're checking in, like, "Am I falling asleep? Oh, I'm close to getting. Oh no, I'm not close to getting. Right. You know." And um, that is. That it is so hard. And so for me, the way that we can set ourselves up for success is, you know, we want to make sure we have a really great dark environment to sleep in. You know, we want to make sure that that environment is cool and that it's safe. And what I mean by safe is you can't have a load of dirty laundry laying next to your bed when you're trying to sleep. You know, teenagers can do that. Adults can't, you know. And we want to be able to have a sense that, you know, our bed partner is a good person to have there. You know, I always kind of joke, you can't sleep next to somebody you don't like. And that's not really a joke. Like, we got to like like who's in there if they're right. going to be there. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that everything feels right, smells right, sounds right. And we have to figure out sometimes how to accommodate motherhood and all of this, mm-hmm. you know. it Consistency is your best friend, you know. So if we have really nice consistent schedules, it helps our systems out. Um, and it's going to help our brain with that performance in ways that then we can rely on it. And then the last part is, is that we got to figure out how not to care about it so much. Right. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> which which can be a huge challenge and yet so important. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think I hope that most people, when they really start understanding how how much better they probably could feel in in so many realms, um, sleep just the role it plays in so many parts of our body functioning well. Um, I hope people really take a look at making time for it because yeah. this was my biggest challenge: is that um, being a working mom spending time with my kids and then trying to get all the stuff done on the side, I was, I was carving out my, my, I was taking my sleep time away. So the kids would go to bed. That's when I would run to target. That's when I would get extra work done. That's when I would have my me time. And so I was mindlessly not sleeping, but I didn't want to go to sleep because it was the only time (laughs) I had for me. I know. So it's been my new year's resolution this year to make time for sleep and, um, and lo and behold, I can still fit life yeah. in, even if I'm making time for sleep. You got it. I mean, you know, it's funny. Melissa and I used to have this workout that we did together. And, man, I loved it. But we met at 5.15, yep. which meant getting up at 4.30. Yep. And I was like, um, I just couldn't do it. Mm-mm. And it's funny. I was going through a, stress, a stressful time and in the last few weeks, and I realized that what I was doing was I was also shortening my sleep because I had too much to do, right? Yeah. And I, I had the same thing where I actually, for the first time in years, decided I was going to – I curtailed the number of workouts I was doing so I could – get an appropriate amount of sleep because I was not prioritizing it and my body was getting wrecked for it. Yeah. I feel like for some reason, we all feel like that's the one thing we can take away yeah. and, and that we'll be okay later. But but it's actually the most important I know. thing. <laughs> I know. And it's funny. It really felt... 
I mean, you know, I always tell my folks with insomnia that I want them to work out and I want them, you know, like going back to when you've had a tough night, I still want you to try to have a full day because the more we inhibit during the day, the more we actually like worsen insomnia. Um, But at the same time, we got to also be willing to listen to our bodies. And that was, um, that was, like I said, probably the first time in, uh, I, in any time I can remember where I said, okay, I'm going to let myself prioritize this over the workout. And, you know, I now actually feel like I have the mental bandwidth to be able to now put the workouts back in. But right. also a big part of that is turning off the Netflix and making myself go to bed at the right, right. time. Right. <laughs> Which can be really hard to do. It is. It's funny. You know, I thought that when we you know, I've loved this movement towards streaming TV because mm-hmm. I feel like it gives us a lot of options. And the downside is, is it um, also gives us a lot of options. Right. Right. <laughs> and can take up a lot of time. A lot of time. <laughs> and that's a whole other topic. <laughs> right. Right. I, I love talking about sleep with you. I think it is fascinating. You have, you just, um, you make everything so clear. And so I'm really thankful that we got to talk about this today. And I want our listeners to know if you have any more questions or topics about sleep that we can talk about, there's no better person that we could pick her brain. So please uh, send us your request for, for sleep. And thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, hopefully you'll be listening soon. Visit our website and you'll see some more specific recommendations and some of our writing about some of our topics. And we love to get suggestions from you guys. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Curious Mother. Learn more at www.thecuriousmother.com where you will find resources related to episode topics. Please join our community and add your voice. Follow us on Instagram at The Curious Mother. Thanks for listening.